24. The topic of those verses is that Joshua summarizes the conquest of 33 kings by himself and Moses on both sides of the Jordan River. The title of our message this morning, All the King's Horses and All the King's Men Couldn't Put Canaan Together Again. (laughs) Chapter 12, verse 1. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites. And the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinnereth, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, the road to Beth Jeshemoth, and southward below the slopes of Pishgah. The other king was Og, king of Bashan and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants who dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Edri, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salca, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Jeshurites and the Machathites, and over half of the Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak, and the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lashish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezir won. The king of Debir won. The king of Gedir won. The king of Horma won. The king of Arad won. The king of Libna won. The king of Adullam won. The king of Makeda won. The king of Bethel won. The king of Tapua won. The king of Hafer won. The king of Aphek won. The king of Lasharon won. The king of Madon won. The king of Hazor won. The king of Shimron Meron won. The king of Akshaf won. The king of Tanakh won. The king of Megiddo won. The king of Kadesh won. The king of Jachnium in Carmel won. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor won. The king of the people of Gilgal won. The king of Terza won. All the kings, 31. Let's pray together. Father, as we um, think about and meditate uh, upon these victories by Moses and Joshua, I pray that uh, our hearts would be stirred to continue to walk in victory in our own lives, to believe, Lord, that you, as our Joshua has, has gone before us, as it were, into the land, conquering every foe that stands in our way, and that all we need do is uh, walk with you, Lord, and uh, experience that victory. Uh, we're all struggling in some area this morning, some uh, secret sin or some open habitual sin, some attitude, some uh, some struggle of some kind, maybe a, a struggle with suffering, Lord, or 
uh, pain of some kind, some circumstance, whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that you would show us how to claim it and to take victory over it and to be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who doesn't know you, they have never asked you to save them and to forgive them their sins, I pray, Lord, that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who is in the world and in this place to convict of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come, that you would do that work, Lord, and draw them to Jesus Christ, to his love and grace and mercy and salvation. And for those of us who've known you, whether it's a week or a decade or a lifetime, Lord, that we would uh, be renewed in our first love and be just as in love with you as we ever were. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So it was Joshua 31 and Moses 2. Without taking anything away from the greatness of Moses as the Lord's servant, you can't help but be struck by the contrast between what he accomplished and what Joshua accomplished when it came to conquering the promised land. This is really just a list of exactly what happened uh, in the land. And as we get to, you know, the beginning now in Joshua of the division of the land by tribes, uh, we're just brought up to date, but at reading it through just from a devotional aspect, it's like, you know, wow, two kings versus 31 kings. There's a huge contrast there. Now, you might argue that Moses never got the chance since he died before the Israelites entered the land. Well, do you remember why he died on their journey to the promised land? The Israelites twice complained about not having sufficient water. The first time they complained, God told Moses to strike a rock and water would flow from it. The second time they complained, God told Moses to merely speak to the rock and water would flow from it. Instead of speaking to the rock the second time, Moses smote it twice. Water flowed as promised, but God took Moses aside and he disciplined him for it. He said, and this is from Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. After 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in the desert and 40 more years leading Israel through the wilderness, Moses was prevented from entering the promised land because of this failure. The Bible tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, and I read in verse uh, 1 of chapter 34, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pishkah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Moses was only allowed to see the promised land. Joshua would be the one who would seize it. It struck me that this contrast between these two men spotlights the experience 
many of us have as Christians. We're walking with the Lord as his servants and enjoying some victories, but we seem to fall short of really entering into everything the Lord has promised us. We read the word and we can see our spiritual inheritance in Jesus Christ, but we're having trouble seizing it. Maybe we can learn something then from Moses and Joshua. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you can be a Moses who sees your spiritual inheritance. Or number two, you can be a Joshua who seizes your spiritual inheritance. First of all, in verses one through six, you can be a Moses. Now, the first six verses take us back to the victories that God gave Moses over Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. These victories are uh, victories, excuse me, are considered as part of the total conquest here since the territory was occupied by two and a half tribes of the nation of Israel. And as I said a moment ago, uh, getting on now in chapter 13 and forward, we're going to see the division of the land. And so Joshua pauses to let you know uh, about the summary of the conquest so that he can then begin to talk about the division. And so he includes the area east of the Jordan, which was conquered by Moses. Obviously, I mean no disrespect to Moses this morning. After all, I don't want to have to avoid him once we're together in heaven. Uh, You know how it is when you see people in the grocery store that are mad at you or whatever, and you're like, you know... Uh, you jump into the cold counter, you know, and so there you j- get into the milk. You put your head into the milk thing, you know. No, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Uh, and, and so I, you don't want to be in heaven and have Moses coming, or you'll know it's him because he'll, you know, he'll have those Ten Commandments and that staff. And uh, it looks a lot like Charlton Heston. But anyway, you don't you don't want to have a problem with Moses. I mean, Moses is a powerful guy. You know, I don't, I don't want to have frogs in my bed in my mansion in heaven or anything like that. And so I mean no disrespect, but he is the one who struck the rock twice and was prevented from entering into God's inheritance for Israel in Canaan. And it is given for our learning. Now, sure, you say Moses was angry. Who wouldn't be angry with that complaining crowd? I mean, Moses, 40 years, he grows up in Egypt and then he has to run out to the desert Uh, For 40 years where he learns how to tend sheep. How hard is it to tend sheep that it takes 40 years to learn how to do that? Well, God was preparing him for another 40 year stint. He didn't think it was going to take 40 years to get into the promised land. It's only an 11 day march. Uh, But when they got to the borders of the promised land, uh, the people said, hey, why don't we send in some spies to see what's, you know, militarily what's going on in there. Moses thought they were just going in to kind of get the lay of the land to do a map quest kind of a thing, you know, and uh, map quests, Internet thing. They wouldn't have had that then. You understand that, right? So anyway, uh, so they come back. They think they're a committee that's trying to decide whether they're going to take the land. And so they outvote two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, and they decide not to go in. So God says, okay, you can never go in. They say, oh, well, maybe we'll go in. And God says, no, please don't go in. Uh, It's going to go bad. I already decided you can't. They try to go in. They're defeated. And for 40 years, Moses now has to shepherd those people in the wilderness until they all die off that generation over 20 years old because God prevents them. So, you know, I mean, if Moses wants to get mad and hit a rock, uh, I mean, we would say he had cause. Why was it so significant that he, it required a rather severe discipline from God? Well, the rock, it turns out, was a type of Jesus Christ who was once smitten for the salvation of the human race. 
When you read the New Testament, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and Paul the Apostle says, that rock that followed them was Jesus Christ. By the way, I always thought this was kind of comical. God does have a sense of humor. There is a time when Moses is told to strike the rock and water flows from it. And then there's another time when he's told to speak to it and water will flow from it. But it says that the rock followed them. And so, you know, as I, I envision that as they were camping and then God would move them to another place, they'd get up in the morning and... <laughs> Do you remember that rock from Horeb? Is that the same rock? I wonder if they drew on it, you know? I would, you know, just chip into it. I'm going I'm to mark this rock. I think that's the same rock. It's been fun. So somehow this rock followed them around, but the rock was Christ. It was a type in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ. And uh, the rock had been smitten in Exodus 17 to give water. Now the type was, to preserve the type, the rock only needed to be spoken to the second time in order to dispense its living water. Jesus was smitten once on the cross. He was crucified so that we might be able to speak to him and receive eternal life by grace through faith. When we enter into a personal relationship with him, we can approach him anytime and anywhere. And so that's the, the type that God was developing from before the foundation of the world. He was showing them in the Old Testament in a picture language what the Savior would be like in the New Testament when he came. He would be smitten, struck, so that he could dispense living water so that we could come to him at any time uh, for salvation. Now, it wasn't just that Moses ruined a beautiful illustration. In the passage we quoted from Numbers, God said to Moses, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So God told Moses two specific things. He said, you did not believe me, and he said, you did not hallow me. Now, of course, Moses believed in God. Of course, he believed God could and would bring water from the rock. He had done it before. Believe is the translation of an interesting word. It, it comes from a root word meaning to build up or to support, and it would be used of a parent nurturing the development of a child or of a nurse supporting the healing of a patient. Moses may have been angry or resentful or bitter towards the Israelites. We might even just chalk it up to a temper tantrum. Regardless what we might call it, God said he did not believe. And that means that Moses did not portray God to his people as a nurturing father or as a caring nurse. He portrayed God as a harsh, cruel taskmaster. He misrepresented the nature and the character of God. How would it be if you had the feeling that when you went to talk to Jesus Christ, he would get irritated with you? And yell at you. Uh, I, uh, I can say this because my brother never listens to the tapes. Uh, I have an older brother. The Italian people, there's always, in every Italian family, there's one, at least one person who has a hair trigger temper. And, and I mean, it just, you know. I, that's why I always tell you, any of the Italian movies or television shows, they're all absolutely accurate as far as stereotypes. I don't know what people have a problem with. You know, everybody in them is in my family. Uh, 
So anyway, I, I remember as a kid, you know, I had an older brother and he, he would just one minute, he'd be just fine. And the next minute he would be just, it would go, you know, and you couldn't, I learned not to be too close to him because he would just lash out, you know, and um, we were building a model one time and it just wasn't going well. And he goes, ah, you know, and he hits me and, and, uh, I was like, okay, uh, you know, that's what older brothers do. But anyway, and, uh, I've never gotten over it and the therapy is, is still continuing. But anyway, uh. So, you know, we think, okay, well, yeah, he just, that's just Moses. And he had good reason. But uh, what he does is he misrepresents the character of God. I mean, we don't want, I mean, Jesus, can you help me with this problem? Bam, you know, I don't have time right now. I mean, it's awful. Now, as an aside to our study, let me say that we do not want ever to misrepresent the nature and character of God. Not so much because he will discipline us for it. That's a good thing. Uh, to be disciplined when we need it, that's great. But we want to be careful to never misrepresent God because people's lives are at stake. Their eternal life and the quality of their earthly life as they walk with the Lord are at stake. And so whether we're, you know, just Christians in, you know, at school or at the job site or at home or whether we're doing some kind of ministry, Sunday school or teaching a Bible study or ushering, whatever it would be. We want to properly represent the nature and character of God because, you know, like it or not, people are watching and they many times derive their understanding of the nature and character of God from Christians. Christian means uh, like Christ. And so if Christians are a certain way and uh, I watch them, then I start to think that that's the way Jesus is. And so we never want to misrepresent the Lord uh, in any way, will we fall and fail in that area? Well, of course, because we contend with the flesh, but we don't want to excuse it and we don't want to get comfortable doing it. Uh, we want to represent the grace of God. Christians have a tendency when they're faced with a situation to err on the side of caution rather than on the side of grace. And so if somebody comes up and asks you to forgive them or to extend mercy to them, or maybe they've been in sin and they're repenting of their sin. Oh, man, do I really, I don't know if I want to give them all the grace because, you know, what if I'm wrong? And so, you know, we kind of pull back and, well, you know, I'm, I need to see you walk with the Lord for a while or, you know, I'm hesitant or whatever. Let's err on the side of grace because that's what Jesus did. I don't know how you can get any worse off than the lady caught in adultery in John chapter 8. I mean, as far as I can tell, she was brought naked to the Lord having been caught in the very act of, of fornication. And, and when Jesus finally dealt with the situation and looked at her, he said, where are your accusers? Does any man accuse you? And she said, no man accuses me, Lord. And he says, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Uh, grace or caution? I mean, sometimes I think in the church we would say something different. And so we just want to be cautious about that. Make sure that we're representing God as he desires to be represented. Now, this word hallow, the second thing is that Moses was told he didn't hallow God in the eyes of the people. The word hallow captures the sense of what the people did not see about God. Because Moses misrepresented God, they did not see him as someone to be reverenced, no matter your personal feelings or frustrations. In other words, Moses, they knew, was the man of God. He spoke with God. He saw God face to face. He glowed when he came down from mountains. I mean, he was with God. And, and, and now he was showing them that, hey, it's okay to get angry every now and then. It's okay to explode every once in a while. It's okay to say to somebody, you rebel. 
you know, how am I, how long am I going to strive with you? Now, here's what we're saying. If you feel as though you're falling short, seeing God's promises, but not really seizing them, look into your own heart for what we would call attitude. You ever sometimes, you know, get into a situation with somebody and that's a phrase we use now in, in today's vernacular. We say, well, that guy has attitude. You know, he, he just is giving you some attitude. Well, I think sometimes we give attitude for lots of different reasons. And we kind of get comfortable with it the longer we walk with the Lord. We have a lot of excuses. A lot of strange things actually go on in our hearts. You can substitute the word mind for heart if it makes more sense. I want to give you an example from the Bible of what goes on in some hearts. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, the prophet is given a vision. And it's really a vision where he's looking into the hearts and the minds of the leaders. Uh, it's talking about looking into the tabernacle, but it's really showing what's going on in their hearts as you continue to read. And so God says to him, uh, Ezekiel chapter eight, verse seven, he says, so he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations, which they are doing there. So I went in and saw in there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts and the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say the Lord does not see us. And by the way, the phrase, the room of his idols can be alternately translated the room of his pictures. One Bible commentator said this, a modern equivalent to these rooms of pictures would surely be things like pornographic literature Along with our secret fantasies and the American macho male mythologies we live by today, these captivate us more fully than any statue of a golden calf ever could. In Ezekiel's day, every man had his room of pictures, his secret world of lustful fantasies and inner idolatries, which, though hidden largely from public view, reflected the condition of their hearts uh, and the condition of the people towards personal and holy devotion to God. Now, maybe it's just me, but I think this happens frequently, maybe not to that extent, but we do have a tendency to entertain carnal thoughts in our hearts and minds, all the while thinking they don't affect our walk with the Lord. They will affect it. They do affect it. There's a classic Christian track that you should read. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's by an author whose name is Robert Boyd Munger. You can find the complete text of it on the Internet if you just type in My Heart, Christ's Home or the name of the author. It describes a person asking Jesus to come into his heart and make it his home. It's based on the uh, picture in the Bible, especially in Revelation, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open the door and, uh, you know, I'll come in and have supper with him. And so uh, sometimes we talk about our relationship with the Lord as if he's come in to live in our heart. That's his home. We're having dinner with him. And so it's not too much of a stretch to think of, you know, our modern houses with their various rooms. Uh, and so this author, using the analogy of a house, goes room by room describing how the indwelling of Jesus Christ might affect us. 
And it's a really a great and encouraging heart check. You know, as a lot of times you hear in church, search your heart, let the Lord examine your heart, those kinds of things. You think, well, how do you actually do that other than, you know, through prayer and Bible study? Well, you might want to get this little devotional and, and think of it in those terms. You know, if, if my life were like a, a house, what, what goes on in my living room or in my rec room or, uh, you know, in my bedroom and things like that? I want to read one small section uh, that follows along with our study. It's about what happens in the hall closet. One day I found Jesus waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. There was a small closet up there on the hall landing, just a few feet square. In that closet, behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anybody to know about. Certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit that they were there. Reluctantly, I went up with him, and as we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. Jesus pointed to the door. I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the rec room. And now here he was asking me about a little two by four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with all this smell, you're mistaken. I'll go out on the porch. Then I saw him start down the stairs. When one comes to know and love Jesus, the worst thing that can happen is to sense him withdrawing his fellowship. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said, sadly, but you will have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. Just give me the key, he said. Authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. With trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it, walked over to the door, opened it, entered, took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet, and he painted it. It was done in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. You know, really, that is all that we're talking about today. A simple heart searching so that we do not fail to believe and hallow God in our walk with him. Many years ago, I had the privilege of meeting briefly uh, Dr. Alan Redpath. We sell his books in the bookstore, and um, he's a fantastic Bible commentator. Every time I read his books, I want to quit. You know, I just think, man, I, this, this is amazing stuff. And uh, humble man, wonderful man, uh, was a mentor for Pastor Don McClure, who's a Calvary pastor who I, I have a great deal of respect for. And um, uh, Don tells the story of Alan Redpath and his wife, Marjorie. They were having dinner with the Redpaths one night. And after dinner, Marjorie got up and she asked her husband, Alan, if he would help her uh, clear the table, to which he said, I'll help you in a moment. I want to talk to Don for just a minute. Don and Jean and Alan went in the other room while Marjorie went about her business in the kitchen. And just a couple of minutes really into the living room situation, uh, Dr. Redpath got up, excused himself, and went into the kitchen to apologize to his wife for the harsh language he had used in uh, refusing to help her clear the dishes. And Don, of course, he has to tell the story because it's fantastic, but he started thinking, no, please, no, this, this can't be... If this is harsh language, then I'm dead. I might as well. I mean, you know, I mean, what are you talking about? The illustration is this. Dr. Redpath had become so 
sensitive in a sense with what was really going on in his heart, with the attitude of his heart, that he knew that he was being harsh and judgment. It didn't really necessarily come across that way. He didn't yell at his wife. He didn't use foul or vulgar language. Uh, he just knew that what he had said was from an attitude of selfishness and all. And that's really the kind of thing that we're talking about here. We look at Moses. Moses had a significant lapse of character. Moses called the meekest man who ever lived, the servant of the Lord, a wonderful servant of the Lord, yet he was given to this temper. Early in his career, he had killed an Egyptian, thinking that that was the way that he was going to deliver the nation of Israel. Boy, did that turn out bad. That's why he had to flee to the desert for 40 years. Now, later in his career, he has this moment which we would excuse. I would. Man, those people, those people are like my spouse. Those people are like my boss. Those people are like my fellow students. Those people are like people at church that I struggle with. They're, they're rebels. They're, they're against me. They're ungodly. You know, that, and, and if I get mad at them, if I get angry with them, if I show righteous ignorance, that's just the way I am. That's, you know, I can't control myself. I, I couldn't take it anymore. And, and God would take us aside and say, can you see the promised land? That's all you're doing right now. You're seeing it, but you're not entering into it because you're allowing this to dominate in your heart. You've got some victories. I've brought water into your life. You'll have more victory, but until you really start to deal with some of these, what we would call nuances of attitude, you're going to be a Moses and not a Joshua. Let's look at Joshua in verses 7 through 24, at least talk about him for a minute. The names of the 31 kings conquered in Canaan are given in the order of their encounter with Joshua. It all began, of course, at Jericho, we remember from our previous studies, as Joshua took the strategic city at the very center of the land. Once he had the center under control, taking Jericho and then Ai, he went to the south and conquered the kings and the cities there, and then he was able to go to the north and conquer the kings and the cities there. And that's the record that we have in these verses. Now, the devotional insight we're drawing from these verses comes from the sheer magnitude of the contrast. As I pointed out at the beginning, Moses conquered two kings on the borders of the promised land. He sought from a mountaintop, but never entered into it. Joshua went into it and conquered 31 kings in rapid succession. He set foot in the land. He seized the land. It encourages you that you can do more than just see the things Jesus has promised you. You can seize them. The how-to is on every page of the Bible. It's in every story with its illustrations and types. But it all begins by believing that you are a Joshua. The writer to the Hebrew Christians compared Moses to a servant in God's house. And he said Jesus was the son in that house. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews... The, the writer there is trying to prove to a Jewish Christian audience that Jesus Christ is superior in every way to the uh, Jewish system of worship, that the new covenant in Jesus Christ is superior to the old covenant. And one of the things he has to do and does quite well is show them that though Moses was great, a servant in God's house, Jesus was, of course, greater because he was the son. And the son just has greater privileges than the servant. He has greater access. He has greater inheritance. You want to be the son, not the servant. If you are a Christian, the Bible repeatedly describes you as being in Christ. 
And among the things that that means is that whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. We've seen in our studies in Joshua that as, Je- as Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead, we are crucified with him, buried with him, risen from the dead with him. And so that we have access to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And so we are sons in that household of faith, sons and daughters. Now, when I say be a Joshua, it means to begin more and more to understand your privileged position as a child of God. It means to believe more and more that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, not just some things. Uh, You know, a lot of times we believe that we can do some things because we've experienced victory in those areas. But there are some areas that are giants in our lives. There are are mountains that we we don't seem to be able to climb. We keep struggling with them. And we don't don't reckon or understand that though the battle is a little bit more difficult, we are conquerors, more than conquerors in Christ, and that we will have victory in that area. It means to believe more and more that things are working together for the good to those who love the Lord. All things, not just most things or some things. It means to believe more and more that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I understand the nature of the question. I'm not saying it's a wrong question, but a a common question among Christians is, can a Christian be demon possessed? Well, the more you know about the Lord and his love for you, the more ridiculous that question becomes. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Hey, the devil's already a roaring lion seeking to devour you. It's more like a cougar attack on a bicycle path. You know, he's not going to possess you because the Lord is filling your life. And we just need to believe that more and more. It means to believe more and more that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. We are too much like Moses. I say that with respect. We tend to see our spouse or our children or our bosses as if they were the Israelites hassling us. Instead of seeing them that way, we should concentrate on how they see God in and through us. They should see him nurturing and caring for them. It's up to us to win the war within and walk in the spirit rather than giving in to our flesh. We ought to therefore hallow God. Now, I need to say a final word about Moses. As I said earlier, he was prevented from entering the promised land, but he got there eventually. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus took a group of his disciples up to a mount. It became the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus was revealed there to those disciples in his future glory. Two Old Testament saints appeared with Jesus. One of them was Elijah. The other was Moses. And so Moses did get to set his feet in the promised land and in a glorious capacity as well. And he will in the future as the Lord returns to establish his kingdom on the earth for 1000 years. It shows us, among other things, that even in God's severe discipline, there is always grace and mercy. If you are not a believer, the only thing for you to do today is to invite the Lord into your heart. If you are a believer... You should take the Lord on a tour of your heart, room by room, as it were. Let him do a makeover, like we like to say today, an extreme home makeover. Then seize the promises that you've inherited as a son or a daughter in this great household of faith. Let's pray together. 
Father, we appreciate so much the pictures that you give us in the Bible because they tend to fill out our understanding of the doctrine and the teaching that's there. And this is really something I can understand, Lord. I can, I can see Moses striking that rock. I can justify him in doing so because I do that so often in various different ways. But I understand, Lord, that it, it misrepresents you. And I don't want to do that anymore. And I don't think my brothers and sisters ever want to do that. And so thank you for that. You've, you've put, in a sense, uh, a picture to our understanding of what it means to, uh, to really seize the land. On top of that, Lord, we want to believe that because you are our Joshua and have gone to the cross and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and promised to return, that we can do anything that you ask us to do, anything you command us to do, anything that we read in your word, we're enabled to do by your Holy Spirit. Some of it might be more difficult than others, Lord, in terms of just working it out as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, but, Lord, we, we want to just press forward and know that the victory belongs to us. Do a great work in the hearts of your people, Lord. And as I said, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, may they be drawn to you. May their heart be filled with the knowledge of you. You know, this morning, just as we close and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I think I do want to give an opportunity to anyone who might be here. You don't know the Lord. You've never asked the Lord to, to be your Savior. Uh, it's an important thing, obviously. It's the most important thing. Uh, the Bible says that it's appointed unto men and women once to die, and after this comes a judgment. Uh, it, without being morbid, uh, all of us are here on earth, and we're going to die, and we're going to live forever the only question is where we're going to live forever is it going to be in heaven in a beautiful precious loving relationship with jesus christ or is it going to be separated from him in a place of torment and anguish uh, really prepared for the devil and his angels in their rebellion against god those are the only two choices and so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in just a moment uh, i'm going to ask you to do something it's very simple and I ask you to, to raise your hand to acknowledge that you want to reach out to the Lord. But before we do, as we continue to pray, and Christians especially praying, let's just sing a chorus and invite the Holy Spirit to do His sweet and gentle work on the hearts of individuals in this place. To all who are thirsty, to all who are weak, Come to the fountain Dip your heart in the stream of life Let your pain and your sorrow Be washed away In the wave of His mercy As deep cries out too deep and come to Jesus come come to Jesus come there's a passage in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah depicts the Lord as wanting to reach down out of heaven and save you and it's, he says it's not that his arm is so short, but that your sin has separated you from him. And that's really the issue, that we've fallen short 
of the glory of God. And, and the, the picture I get there is, is of a man or a woman that's fallen in a deep pit that they can't get out of. And the Lord is giving them the lifeline of his hand. Uh, the only thing you have to do is reach out and grab that and he'll pull you up and put you on that salvation ground. And so that's why we like to just have people raise their hand. It, it's symbolic. It fulfills the symbolism of Scripture. And so if you're here this morning, I, I don't know that there are any non-believers, but I suspect that there are. Maybe you think you're a believer, but you're not sure. You're not absolutely certain that if you died today, you'd go to heaven. All we're asking you to do is to acknowledge that you want Christ to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, that you believe that he is the Son of God who came for that purpose. Just raise your hand so that we can pray for you. Raise your hand right now. You're reaching up. God bless you in the back. Anybody else? You're here this morning. God bless you, the two of you. Anyone else? God bless you, sister. Anyone else? You're here this morning. You're just not sure of eternal life. Raise your hand so that we can pray for you. God bless you. Amen. God bless you. God, we thank you for the work of your spirit in this place. It's a great work, Lord, whenever your spirit moves. And I pray for these few who have raised their hands, Lord, acknowledging uh, their need for a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. Praise you, Lord. If you raise your hand this morning, uh, I'm going to just, just from where you sit this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer receiving Christ as your Savior. If you're a Christian, you can kind of uh, pray this prayer along with them, especially if it's someone that you brought or that's sitting next to you. And it's really, there, there's no set prayer because prayer is just talking to God. It's just communicating with God the way you would talk to your own father or your best friend. Uh, but it's good to, to have that moment when you ask the Lord to come into your heart, to have a, a kind of a checkpoint where you can say, yeah, on you know, uh, August 31st of 2008, the Lord came into my heart and I asked him to be my Savior. So if you raised your hand or even if you didn't and you want the Lord to save you this morning, I'm going to ask you to just pray after me. Uh, you can pray silently, but... It, Pray audibly. The, the, you know, the Lord said that whoever he called, he called publicly. Uh, and so just pray quietly or as loud as you feel like you want and, and just pray after me. Pray like this. Say, Lord Jesus, please save me. Forgive me my sins. I believe that you died and rose from the dead. I believe you ascended into heaven. I believe you are the sinless Son of God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change me from within. Give me the strength to say no to sin and yes to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, praise the Lord. Let's stand together and sing this last chorus. You can applaud. That's exciting. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You are altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Here I am. 
Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You are altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. All right, this morning as we close, uh, Kevin's up here to pray with you. If, uh, if you've got something on your heart you want to pray with, I'm going to ask Danny to come down and hang out over here. That would be you, Danny. Uh, and uh, if you raised your hand this morning to ask Christ to be your Savior and you feel like you uh, want to give us your name and number so that we can follow up on you or give you a Bible or just pray with you, uh, come on down and Danny will find a pen and pencil because he probably doesn't have one. Uh, but we'll take care of that and uh, we'll just take down your name and number. We don't have membership. We don't ask you for money. We're not asking you for anything. We would just like to know who you are so that we can pray for you and encourage you because, you know, once you become a Christian, you think life was hard. Uh, now you have an enemy. Uh, and the enemy wants to come in and try to convince you that you're not saved, that nothing happened, that you're the same person, when in reality the Holy Spirit has come to take residence in your heart to, to give you eternal life. And so if you want that point of contact, we'd like to offer that. The rest of you, hang around campus. It's a beautiful day outside. We're serving the best drinks anywhere. Uh, grab a drink. Um, your assignment, as usual, is to find somebody you've never seen before. Introduce yourself. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, Gene, I looked at everybody and I know every one of them. And so until you can do that, uh, be friendly and uh, may God bless you. See you tonight in Lemoore if you can make it. God bless.